0: Welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Peter Kenny,
1: And I'm Robin Houghton. And first of all, a big Happy New Year to all our listeners, as this is the first episode of 2023. And in this episode, Peter is talking to special guest Mimi Calvati about her collection Afterwardness.
0: We'll also look at this year's T.S. Eliot Award winner. And Robin goes back to 1985 and discovers Finally, Douglas Dunn.
1: Ah, takes me a while, but I got there in the end. <laughs> also, Peter and I do a little bit of small talk about our big plans for 2023. But before all that excitement, let's hear what Mimi Calvati had to say to Peter.
0: Mimi Calvati was born in Tehran and grew up on the Isle of Wight, where she went to boarding school. After training at Drama Centre London, she worked as an actor in the UK and as a director in the theatre workshop Tehran. She has published eight collections of poetry with Carcanet Press, including The Weather Wheel, The Meanest Flower, which was a Poetry Book Society recommendation, a Financial Times Book of the Year and shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize and more recently Child, New and Selected Poems, 1991 to 2011. Her work has been translated into nine languages, and she received a Chumley Award in 2006. Today, we're going to be discussing her exquisite collection, Afterwardness, published by Carchanet in 2019. Mimi Calvati, welcome to Planet Poetry.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Peter.
0: That's possibly the most exhausting introduction I've ever done.
2: (laughs) I think it's just that I've been around now for quite a long time. So, you know, obviously things build
0: up. Yeah, today we're going to talk about afterwardness, which is an interesting word. There's all kinds of themes in there about time and exile and identity, A thread of autobiography in it too. So maybe before we start on picking it, could I ask you to read the first poem in the collection?
2: Thank you. And you're right, it is. it is probably my most autobiographical book and this strange title which is a mouthful isn't it it's coined by Freud so it's even more of a mouthful in German and I'm not going to even attempt to say it (laughs) Um, but I I sort of took it to mean something like in retrospect attributing meaning to early Mm. events in your life especially Mm. if they were traumatic in some way So this first poem that you've asked me to read is touching a little bit on that main early event in my life. When I was six years old, I was sent from Tehran to Shanklin on the Isle of Wight um, and to boarding school there. And I was alone on the flight, though I think I must have had somebody in charge of me. But I imagine I was like one of those children wearing labels, you know. But I certainly didn't have family or anybody I knew with me.
0: Um, A sort of Tehran version of Paddington Bear or
2: something.
0: (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) I love that. And, of course, at that age, I hadn't any idea what on earth was really going on. I had been told, oh, you're going to England for an education or something like that. And I don't really remember being on this actual flight, though I vaguely remember the sensation. I really have no early memories of my first six years in Iran. But I have a a sensation of sitting on this chair in the plane and not being able to see out of the window and not knowing what is going on at all. So that's the setting of the poem. And looking at the after effects of this event, I think one of them was a lack of curiosity. Because having started with those big questions like, why am I here? Where am I going? What am I doing? Where's mummy? And all the rest of it. I think I just grew up being so used to not having questions answered or not having anybody there to answer them that probably quite soon I learned to have just got used to not asking them or not even thinking of them. So all my life I've grown up with this astonishing lack of curiosity about my own life and quite often other people's as well. So there's a Farsi word here, kamaraband, which is our English word, kamaraband, which comes from the Persian, and it simply means belt. Questions. You're smaller than you were, or so you think. You don't remember sinking quite so low on other seats. Something has made you shrink, or else something has made the seat back grow. You're a normal child, if a bit bewildered, struggling to push the feelings down, the questions, the stillborn questions never to be answered, stretching to see a sky that simply darkens. Flying away from all you know with you and someone sitting next to you, but who? The only ones not gone or disappearing. It's normal to feel trust. And you do, don't you? Trust is a kind of seat belt, stretching, shrinking, a camad band. You'll soon forget you're wearing.
0: That's such an amazing record of this overwhelming event of being a child moving from one country to another. The idea of the the child shrinking, because when I first read that I almost felt like it was almost like an older person feeling a bit smaller than they used to be.
2: I think that's (laughs) exactly right, sort of more or less where I've got to now in my (laughs) old age. But yes, it was a peculiar sensation and I, I do remember that.
0: There's a an adult eye here, isn't there, that we're looking back at a memory. So it's almost like a a memory of of having that memory.
2: That's that's so exactly... Right, Peter, I, I, I love that. That's very sensitive sort of response.
0: I found it really intriguing that you say it's normal to feel trust. It's one of those lines that, that you just drop in from time to time that sort of seems quite innocent when you first catch it out of the corner of your eye. But the more you think about it, the more kind of bamboozling it gets. You know, what were you trusting in yourself or just?
2: It's a very good question. Of course, it's a statement that isn't particularly true not necessarily true, <laughs> yeah. um, but I suppose it's me as an adult looking back, thinking back to that child self mm. and perhaps trying to reassure that child in some way. And I, I think it's that just general trust that, well, when you have no idea what on earth is going on and what you're going to do and where everybody is and why you're here and why is it so dark and so on, um, it's just that general trust, I suppose, in your family or where you came from that, oh, they, they will reappear or it will yeah. be all right in the end. Or even you are normal you know? yeah. <laughs> and this is normal because I think that sense of lack of normalness was quite strong in my childhood.
0: Well, I'm not surprised. It, it sort of reminds me of... I ages ago, I went through a phase of going through guided meditations. I, I remember at least uh, two or three of these were about going back and comforting your inner child. Um, <laughs> you know, um, it was all very kind of New Agey and uh, wow. so on. Is that what's happening here? There's a kind of a sort of comforting of that little girl that was put on a plane at such a young age. You know,
2: um, I love that, what you're saying there. Um, But it does make me laugh because also I'm quite allergic to that kind of stuff about, you know,
0: that new (laughs) age. That's good.
2: (laughs) So it's kind of funny to realize, oh, my God, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) I think in a way the whole book and including this poem that I started with this one, because obviously it was the first memory that I have, even if it is a memory or not, Or maybe I've just made it up. And it's the beginning of this whole experience of being sent to England and growing up here and so on. And I I think the whole book was an attempt to explore and to speak for myself and to say what it actually was like for me, as opposed to, I think throughout all my life, I've slightly struggled with what people have assumed it was like. Yeah. Or, you know, made parallels between, oh, this experience is like that experience. For example, you know, lots of children have been sent to boarding school, obviously. And mm. there's lots of things we would all have in common in our experiences. But very few of them were sent to boarding school, say, without any language, which was very important to me. I didn't have a word of English.
0: Oh, God really? And nobody...
2: Yeah. Um, in school, in Shankin I <laughs> spoke Farsi. Um, and also in the holidays, I never went home. Mm. So I very quickly forgot not only my first language, Farsi, but my family, my country, everything. So in that sense, do you see what I'm saying? That the experience of being at boarding school was not paralleled by other no. people's. And I think this has been a running sort of theme in my life that, Partly I go along with other people's assumptions and images and apprehensions or misapprehensions. But I think I've just got now old enough where I'm just saying, Oh, come on woman, for goodness sake, just say it like it was for you. You know, that's okay. No, you can do that, you
0: know. One of the fascinating things about afterwardness is that the form, the, the this beautiful form that continues through the, the book, which is uh Petrarch and Sonnet, and it gives the the whole collection a, a kind of real unity. Now I, I'm not a great expert on Petrarch and sonnets, but I vaguely remember poor old Petrarch having all these lovelorn yeah. feelings for this woman Laura. But there is something about the form that maybe has got that kind of, you know, the seeds of that yearning for something unobtainable in it. I, I saw a, Carol Ruman said in The Guardian that the Petrarchan sonnet echoed in the collection's title poem, the formal structure of an Islamic garden, which I thought was um, in the poem Afterwardness itself.
2: I love what you said about that, you know, yearning for something unobtainable, because I think that's maybe a sort of keynote in my life, but also maybe why I write or wrote in the first place. And, and also the the core of my actual poems um, mm. is this sort of sense of a lost paradise, um, a lost maternal paradise. Because I think at, at in Iran, I was mostly brought up by women, you know, my mother, my grandmother, my great aunts and so on. So yes, it is, It is. I think, that yearning and that something unobtainable is that void in the middle that is the loss of language, of culture, of family, of the country and of identity, all of that. I, I hadn't associated the Italian or Petrarchan sonnet with that, but I, I think, you know, I, I, I love that. That makes sense to me. Um, and how it happened was actually... You know, as as these forms always happen for me, is accidentally. Uh, the first yeah. few poems I was writing just sort of came out as sonnets. And at one point I thought, oh, no, the whole thing's going to be <laughs> a, a sonnet sequence. And then a bit further on, I thought, oh, God, it's going to be book length. Oh, my God. So, in a way, it was against my better judgment and instinct <laughs> that that's how it happened. But I, I do know that, I mean, I love the Italian sonnet and, and working in it in the way that I don't at all the Shakespearean or English sonnet, mm. which is much more hard edged, more like cabinet making, you know, everything has to dovetail and go click, click, clickety, click kind of thing. But yeah. The Italian sonnet to me is more mercurial, more changeable, more fluid, more Italian, (laughs) Um, (laughs) more organic, you know, in some way. Um, And, yes, interesting, um, Carol's comment that it echoes the structure of the Islamic garden, which certainly lies behind that image of the Islamic garden is featured, I suppose, in that title poem. Would you like me to read it?
0: Absolutely, yes.
2: So, again, there's a word in Farsi, which is exactly the word for the Islamic garden. It is chahar bagh. Chahar means four, and bagh is garden. So, it's four garden or a quadripartite garden. It's a garden mm. divided into four segments by paths or rivers. And that, that is the original model, Eden paradise. Afterwardness. An eleven-year-old boy from Aleppo, whose eyes hold only things no longer there, a citadel, a moat, safe rooms of shadow. Afterwardness, in his thousand-yard stare, years later, decades even, might turn around to see through the long tunnel of that gaze A yard, a pond, and pine trees that surround, as in a charred bark, four branching pathways. Where do memories hide? The pine trees sing. In language, of course, the four pathways reply. What if the words be lost? The pine trees sigh. Lost, the echo comes. Lost like me in air, then sing the pathway's answer. Sigh and sing for the echo, for nothing, no one, nowhere.
0: I I love the idea of memory as hiding in language, Uh, and there's that thing from your own life of losing a language and how that kind of affects your memory and at the end of the poem this idea of lost the echo comes lost like me in air which picks up on the, the sort of flying away or flying to into this new life but this idea of speculating also about this 11 year old boy from aleppo what kind of mute memories he'll have in the future it's just so, so so rich a poem. What role does memory play in your own life? It, it's a recurring theme.
2: Well, it is. Um, I think bad memory is the recurring theme,
0: because yeah.
2: as you've implied, you know, when I lost my language Farsi, I think I lost all the memories that were encoded in that language, because mm. it's very strange that I I literally do not have any memories up to the age of six, and I reckon that it was because those memories were in Farsi, as it were. If I'd lost the words for things, then I lost the memories of those things. And then I think bad memory became a kind of habit, along with this thing of not having the answers to those biographical questions. You know, like, for example, I don't know why I was sent to England at that age. I don't know when my parents got divorced because I wasn't there. You know, all the things that happen in your personal life. I didn't really have the story. And um, I was thinking about in our age of, you know, these mass migrations and displacements and so on, that now there must be many, many, especially children, I think, who will be in that situation. They'll have no memories of where they came from or their first languages or their cultures or the story of their lives in a way. Mm. So, so my question also is not just to mourn all that as a loss, but to ask, well, now that we think having stories are so paramount, you know, to tell your story and be heard, but what if you don't have that story to tell? How then do you still give value to your life lived? Because it isn't a life with less value because you can't remember things. Um, So in a way, these are the questions that lie behind this book. And also, I think I, I was asking myself, well, that poem revealed to me that you know, the question's always in my mind, well, who exactly am I writing for? Who is my tribe? And, of course, the, the answer in that poem is rather sad answer, is, well, just write for the echo, for
0: mm.
2: nothing, no one, nowhere, you know.
0: Because I, I, th- I think so much of who we are is founded on memories that we have as, y- as young children. I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. And when, you know, false memories and memory is so unreliable, or in your case almost absent from the age of six that kind of you know how do you construct a story about who you are if you just can't remember you know so exactly and in a way this book afterwardness is is like right this was the point that departure into another world that i start my story what's fascinating about it to me is that this kind of half-remembered hinterland, as it were, keeps informing and intruding, but often in non-verbal kind of ways, in just images and so on.
2: Yes, that, that that's exactly right, Peter, because it's not all memory that's lost in that way. It's actually just more like factual memory or mm. chronological memory or biographical memory. It's not memories of... As you say, images, sense memories, you know, I still have very strongly. Yeah. You know, I can remember the smell of something or the touch of something or the look of something, but I can't attach it to its context. So it just floats around in a void.
0: I- images without a narrative, as it were.
2: Exactly. and I think that's why I really love the lyric and lyric poetry, because I think the lyric doesn't really ask for narrative necessarily. It doesn't ask for facts or biographical data or data in general. It mm. allows you to float around in a sort of lyric void um, <laughs> and pluck images or sonnets out of that void. And so it, Could- in a sense, it sort of validates me or the, this way of living a life. It says, that's okay, you can do it that way too. You know?
0: Could you read background music for us?
2: Background music. You may be in a cafe reading when, after the intro, Billie Holiday and Easy Living lure you out of Walden and swing you in a trance out of the cafe. You may be watching Sean Evans as Morse, mostly to marvel at the mimicry of his body language, so like John Thor's, when you're torn away, this time by Puccini. Away from the spires of Oxford to fall, to fall as Tosca falls, defences fall, that your heart breaks open a dungeon door, and griefs like prisoners crouched on the floor bestir themselves, and infant griefs like dolls sleep through a bell that tolls and tolls and tolls.
0: Well, it's almost quite gothic at the end. Yes, getting... it <laughs> I think
1: but that comes the... from Tosca. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, this is all that sort of Proustian and stuff about kind of involuntary memories and munching on your mm. madeleines and so on. <laughs> but here, you're being triggered by various forms of art. I've read an interview with you about how much you rely on being stimulated by your reading. Have you always been so sensitive to artworks of all, all kinds?
2: When I was a kid... I was very much a sort of bookworm. I used to read a lot as a kid. But I also, I liked all the arts. My, my school, my boarding school, girls' school, was very much arts-oriented, you know. So I mm. played the piano and I did elocution and drama and, you know, um, did painting. So I was quite into all the different arts. And it was like, when, what will you be when you grow up? And I never quite knew which of the arts I would follow, um yeah. but ended up going for theatre and going to drama school. The Impressionists, I love. The artist, we are. I have used one of his paintings as a cover for two of my collections, and mm-hmm. I very much connect with his work. He painted from memory, and his work has got that weird, kind of slightly blurry, slightly askew quality. That visual memories have when you do quite Mm. remember things quite right, you know. At times you can't quite tell—is that somebody's elbow or is it a lamp? You know, I love that quality. And (laughs) nothing is in the foreground and nothing is in the background. Everything has equal status, if you like. So yes, basically, I do (laughs) enjoy the arts. I I think there are spaces in which to lose oneself, and Mm. you know, being lost is my natural habitat, I think, you know, I don't have a very strong sense of self. So if I'm somewhere where I can just be lost, then it just feels normal.
0: You were mentioning that you can't read or write Persian and speak it only poorly in an interview I I read. But there's a poem in here, The Introvert House, which seems to suggest there is a cultural identity that still exists, despite not having the language. Would you read The Introvert House for us, please?
2: Um, this the introvert house. I didn't know this, but I, I was excited to discover this is an architectural term for houses that have that central courtyard. So common oh, in actual... Iran, it's an actual thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's where the house is built around that hidden central courtyard that's so walled mm. in the walled courtyard, which in itself is again that original model of. The Garden of Paradise. So a a little echo of that. The Introvert House. At its heart, the pool, the blue rug of sky. In the middle of my room, the guillin with its fish and fowl. My propensity for arranging furniture, it would seem, in lines around the walls, leaving the floor alone as the focal point, Maybe due, not to some dullness in the soul, but more to workings in the bloodstream, some residue in subliminal memory of windows that look forever inward, galaxies that spin on carpets, geometric rows of turquoise tiles ablaze with symmetries inherent in physics, Avon's Porticos of gardens brought indoors, a Sufi's verses.
0: I had to look up what kilim was, which is a, a woven carpet.
2: Yes, and an avon, as like in the mosque, is, is like a kind of niche in the wall. Mm. This is a fantasy, Peter. I think this this house. It's it's like my hoping that some of this culture is in my bloodstream and not knowing if yeah. it is or not, but, you know, fancying it to be so. <laughs>
0: when, when you were in your 20s, uh, you went back to Iran for a while, didn't you? Uh, you know, w- what was it like for you as somebody that was born there, but then going back as an adult after all this kind of interlude of Englishness?
2: Well, it, it was really, mostly it was incredibly embarrassing because most of the time I was so embarrassed not to know my family. You know, I'd literally have to be introduced, this is your grandmother and this is your aunt, you know, this is when I was 17, and embarrassed Mm. not to speak Farsi and just embarrassed to be so out of it and fish out of water kind of thing, though everyone was very understanding and kind and loving and welcoming and generous, but I, I just did find it somewhat excruciating.
0: Do you think an artist can ever feel completely at home anywhere? Do you need that sense of kind of otherness wherever you are?
2: Yeah, I hear constantly writers saying that their home is in the language. Yeah. And I used to think that and say that as well. Whereas now actually I don't buy that. I think no, it's not I don't. it's not enough. You know, I would home them has got actual walls and, you know, a fun no. place.
0: <laughs> I think back to your first book in white ink and like the first poem in that collection, uh, Woman, Stone and Book. Um, I, I was just checking it for this interview and, and the first lines, you know, in your carcanet career, as it were, are. And I woke one night in tears from a terrible dream of a small stone house with a central chimney, a spiral staircase and grapes on the windowsill. I mean, it's a fine poem, but it, it, it's this kind of idea of, you know, a dream home, a kind of, you know, this idea of trying to pinpoint what home actually is, has really run through your work. A lot, hasn't it?
2: Oh my God, that is so amazing hearing those, you say those lines, which of course I've completely, completely forgotten about. Um, I used to, for many years, have recurring dreams about homes. But they were more than houses, they were homes. And they were always in the process of, uh, I don't know, being knocked down or being rebuilt or, you know, there was always something wrong. But yes, I think a longing for home is always there. And this, as you say, this feeling for an elsewhere. And my elsewhere is, is never located even actually on Earth. I locate it somewhere in the sky. It's yeah. like beyond the sky I can see is an elsewhere, although I don't feel particularly mystical about it.
0: <laughs> your Your poem Scripto Inferior picks up on that theme a little, I think.
2: Oh my goodness, I'm so amazed that you're picking this poem, which I considered completely impenetrable. And when I wrote it, I thought, well, no one will have the faintest idea what I'm talking about. But it felt important to me to try and write in a poem what I'm trying to write about in the book. Mm. And the scripto-inferior is actually the name given to the traces of former text on palimpsests, on the papyrus. that used to be washed, so it could be reused. But when it was washed, it left those traces, which I'm correlating in my mind with my life, my early life, or my culture, or my background. Scripto-inferior. To know your story is to understand not only who you are and where you come from, even if some imaginary homeland is all you know, shall ever know, of home, but is also to understand the nature of story, how to prime a palimpsest for all successive stories, how to ensure reference points gain valence from the first, hence a love of narrative and a mind with an ingrained habit established by the underwriting of your own life story of near total recall, it is unkind to foist on one whose underscript is less determined and who might feel envious.
0: This line, some imaginary homeland is all you know, shall know of home. Mm -hmm. It spoke to me a lot as well.
2: This poem came out of um not a very nice feeling on my part of envy. Mm-hmm. Um, when people tell you about their families in great detail. Yeah. And you know, what their uncle did and that sometimes <laughs> there's a feeling of, well, just plain envy coming over me. Don't tell me the stories about your family. I haven't got any, you know. Which is not true, of course, I do have some.
0: When I read this, it made me begin to wonder if there were two parallel Mimis in a way. You know, there was you Mimi and and poet Mimi that were slightly different things. You know, that there was this kind of underscript and then there was the poet Mimi rewriting things over the top of it. Does that make any sense to you?
2: Nobody ever has said anything like that to me in my life, but it makes so much sense And uh, I think part of my struggle is trying to bring the two together. I think I'm beginning to do that in this most recent book. I don't think I've done anything like that in the previous books. Mm. Um, Uh, It's a bit late in the day, isn't it?
0: (laughs) You're well known for your sort of championing of the ghazal and your collection, The Meanest Flower. I want us to go back in time to that and ask you to read a poem called Gazal of Gazals.
2: It's a word that um, connects to our word gazelle. So the oh, gazelle, it? yes, yeah. yeah, so it's sometimes yeah. been described as the cry of a wounded deer.
0: Oh, always reminds me of
2: Frida Carlo, actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or uh, uh, talking to women in Perda. You know. mm. This um, short gazelle is dedicated well, it has a quotation from Arashahed Ali, who was an American poet, uh, much mourned by many American poets who he introduced to the ghazal and published in an anthology of ghazals by
0: American poets. He was born in 49 and died in 2001. Yes, so. he
2: died rather prematurely and yeah. very sad. He was very, very loved. And, of course, he wrote beautiful gazelles himself. But the poem is addressed to Archie Markham, who was my partner for many years, and he also died prematurely. Gazelle of Gazelles. Oh, sweetheart, you have sent me a book of gazelles. You have sent me a bough and a brook of gazelles. I have even become tears to live in your eyes. Let me live in the look of gazelles. Shahed is dead, great poets dying, but his swan song is hung on the hook of gazelles. May the rarest editions of love bring us both to a shop with a nook of gazelles. If love's too dear, Mimi, then wander, penniless, in a long, Empty
0: souk of ghazals. I'm left with the feeling that the the poet, you call yourself Mimi in it, (laughs) but that sense of being kind of wandering in a hall of mirrors in a way, you know, just wandering along, a long empty souk of ghazals, you know.
2: I was trying to really discover, you know, why poetry is so loved in Iran and so known by. People who are even illiterate. Mm. You know, so taxi drivers will quote you great long chunks of Hafez or Rumi or whoever. Um, People constantly refer to it. And and of course, I can't read the poetry in the original language. So So, in a way, I was trying to discover, especially with Hafez, who's the greatest and perhaps most loved of the lyric poets, particularly in the ghazal form. Um, you know, what it is that speaks to people so, even today after, you know, this is a 10th century form, um, speaks so, so beautifully, so achingly. And that's, yeah, that's what started me off, trying to write them.
0: We're going to return to afterwardness. I'm going to ask you to read the final poem, which is Vapor Trails, which neatly draws the circle to the first poem.
2: Yes, it comes back to air travel, aeroplanes, airports. Vapor Trails. Staring up at pure blue from down on earth, we see them shining in the firmament, the jets, the contrails, gliding back and forth like deep-sea fish soundless, and innocent. Their exhaust particles and frozen vapours show us graphically cause and effect. In the silver bullet nose jets, the cause. In trails, like spinal x-rays, the effect. It only takes a trigger, a single flight in childhood, for example. Early trauma, to stretch the bare bones of the aftermath into a lyric void beyond the finite and knowable. A via negativa, cruising at altitude on plumes of breath.
0: Wow, what a a beautiful way to tie up. The more I read that, you know, the, there's a kind of upside downness about everything. You know, the, you've got the images of planes like fish. And then there's this idea of the vapour trails. It's a, sort of that sense of where people have been. That's, that's the thing about those planes, isn't it? You can see where they've come mm-hmm. from in a way for a while. You know, you're talking about the via negativa, which seemed to me had a sort of resonance with the scripto inferior poem. What for you is the via negativa in this?
2: It does connect in my mind with negative capability. Mm. So I was thinking actually about poetry, the whole thing of the childhood and the after effects, you know, the whole idea behind afterwardness. Mm. I think it, trying to grasp at the positive aspect not just living with, but writing out of a kind of void where you don't know things, where nothing is certain, where everything melts somehow, like the vapor trails. Mm. You can't grasp it, and yet it, it it is there. It's there on the breath. It's there in the traces, like the spinal X-rays, even the traces of harm or of damage.
0: In the ending, cr- cruising at altitude on plumes of breath—that's what poetry is, in a way. Well, or I think I, I think it was yeah. my
2: sort of a description of of the lyric.
0: Yeah. Well, Mimi Calvati, thank you so much for giving us your time for our podcast, Planet Poetry. It's been an absolute delight talking to you.
2: Thank you so much, Peter. It's been lovely to talk to you as well. And thank you very much for having me on your planet. It's a
0: privilege. That
1: was An extremely interesting interview, Peter. I sensed that, you know, you and Mimi had a really nice chemistry going on there.
0: I used to know Mimi back in the very late 80s and early 90s, and she was just beginning to get rolling on her career then. And I remember seeing her in all kinds of unlikely venues, being really charming and kind of professional and lovely. Um, And I knew her quite well. And we hadn't spoken because I had this kind of hiatus from poetry for you know, at, at least a decade, and I hadn't actually had a conversation with her for about thirty years, and it was just—it was so lovely to talk to her, you know, because I've always kind of followed her career, so it was a bit of a reunion, and that <laughs> probably explains why it was—we were so smiley on it.
1: Well, I mean, it's—it's it's fascinating also to me because my only meetings with Mimi have been in the context of being in her workshops, oh, uh, yeah. rightly have a reputation for being extremely challenging but uh, in, in a positive way but I would say she's kind of the proverbial iron fist in a velvet glove so you don't go to a Mimi Cavati <laughs> workshop unless you, you are absolutely uh, confident in yourself and able to take the knocks
0: <laughs> oh, really?
1: <laughs> but this, this was fascinating I like the way she set the scene at the beginning by explaining about how she traveled over to England when she was very young and I was really fascinated by this idea of she said she grew up used to not asking questions she she didn't have a curiosity she kind of just accepted what was going on around her without really understanding any of it and I feel like maybe that's and clearly you know the fact that she brought that up quite early it's like that's a key to 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 the work under discussion maybe in this book or maybe generally.
0: From a, that child's perspective a sort of self-protective thing is that you don't Ask questions because you're either not going to get any answers, or what they will tell you is Too <laughs> frightening. stuff you absolutely don't want to hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Afterwardness it does come from Freud. Uh, one definition of it is that memory is reprinted, so to speak, in accordance with later experience.
1: And I suppose she had to, without her family around her, she, you know, you sink or swim. To use a cliche, but it sounds like she built a great resilience uh, in herself.
0: One of the things I found about her writing is that there's a quietness about it that you sort of have to tune into it in a way. But I, I'm finding it so rewarding. Uh, I mean, Afterwardness has become one of my favourite books of recent years. Really? Gosh. It, it, it's working that tooth of all these parts of her culture and her past and things which have been forgotten and she's lost the words for and all the rest of it and actually she's reconstructing in the poems of afterwardness a kind of you know building this identity for herself again or reclaiming her own story
1: and yet she's built this really varied and fascinating career and life hasn't she i mean the fact yeah. i didn't realize she'd been uh, she was a an actor and a theater director you had a really interesting discussion before the poem background music where you were talking about the idea of the half remembered hinterland that keeps intruding and Mimi talked about how she feels factual memory goes but but not senses or images and that's what she uh, i liked background music that was the poem that she read after that wasn't it uh,
0: you know being in a cafe and then suddenly you're hearing Billie Holiday in the background and it just mm, mm. F- swings you. She says, swing you in a trance out of the cafe. Or, or watching telly, you know, even watching Morse. Yeah. or And hearing Puccini on the score and that taking you off to another place. Being triggered by moments of art, you know, just being surprised by that. She was talking about a painter, Edouard Vuillard. Uh, that's v u i w l a r d well, I didn't know about, but the idea of him painting from memory.
1: Like painting from one's own memories in the, of the past.
0: Yeah, rather than sitting or actually painting what's in front of you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in a way, I, I thought her choice of that painter for a couple of her book covers, including Afterwardness, is that kind of retelling of memories in a, in a very sort of vivid and unusual way. And I think yeah. this was it.
1: The poem at the end that Mimi read Ghazal of Ghazals. I, I really liked that. I wouldn't say I was a big Ghazal fan. It's ridiculous. How can you say you're not a Ghazal? It's just a form. So obviously that's yeah. a ridiculous thing to say, but but generally I sort of see the, the Ghazal in the title and I'm a little kind of preconditioned in some way, but I really enjoyed that. And it wasn't it interesting that she said that, you know, in Iran... A lot of people know cause I They like, can sort of just, you know, taxi drivers can kind of quote them like, yeah. like taxi drivers in Italy can sing snatches of Verdi. I suppose that's the kind of thing. And you know, it's, it's, it's as much popular culture. And that in itself was interesting to me. The fact that, you know, any country yeah. where literary poetry, shall we say, is known and quoted by the man in the street always amazes and delights me. Yeah, so lots came out of that interview. So thank you for that, Peter. Good one.
0: So it's that time of the show when we talk about what we've been reading. So what's been uh, crossing the desk of Robin Houghton lately?
1: Well, I was reading the winter edition of The Dark Horse,
0: oh yes yeah. a
1: fine magazine and on the cover it says it's um it's looking at two things mcdermid at 100 which i'll come back to another time i think yeah and a fest shrift for douglas dunn now oh. i had to look up fest shift i didn't know what it was do you know what it is
0: some kind of celebration?
1: Yeah, it, exactly, exactly. It's Apparently it's a sort of an academic thing uh, oh. where colleagues, friends, students are invited to contribute essays or thoughts uh, on someone who's had an eminent career in academia. And so first of all, I thought, oh, Douglas Dunn, he must be dead, but... Poor man, he's not dead at all, because <laughs> this is a Lots festive it. So it's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a celebration of his 80th birthday, which was last year. But uh, although I'd heard the name, he's not a poet that I'd read at all. And I'm, I feel a bit ashamed to say that now, but that's silly, isn't it? One can't read everybody. But um, Douglas Dunn. So so I was reading these essays, and some of them are quite entertaining, you know, the people who were his students, or there's, there's, there's quite a funny anecdotes from somebody about how he'd picked up a what he thought was a, a signed copy of one of Douglas Dunn's collections. And then when he when he was a student he sort of triumphantly presented him with this book says, Look what I've got, you know and actually Douglas Dunn, he just kind of didn't say anything, but he just signed it again himself and he said, That one, that is not my signature. I did not <laughs> sign it originally. <laughs> like a Amazing. fake a fake Douglas Dunn had signed it. Um, but no, there's some there's some serious essays from you know Don Patterson. It's Funny, I always struggle to understand Don Patterson's prose. Uh, his poetry is much more lucid, isn't that funny mm. in my mind? Because I'm just I don't have the sort of brain that can process his his uh, erudite thoughts. But there's essays from people like Richie McCaffrey, Catherine Gray, Kathleen Jamie, and um, so uh, so it's, it was interesting really to read about this man. And his work, and there, oh, there's also some people who've written some poems, you know, in celebration of or after some of his work. Uh, and I really liked. Uh, there's a sequence by Rachel Boast for Douglas Dunn, and I really, uh, I really enjoyed that. So uh, it made me think. Right, you know, one collection that was mentioned many times by people was *Elegies*, which I yeah. think is perhaps his most famous collection. It's it's a what, I've, what I've read, Do you know it, 1985.
0: Yeah, I, I bought it sort of at the time, and Did you? It, I, I remember just absolutely being blown away by it um, because it was written after the death of his first wife. Yes, and it was just full of grief and coming to terms with things. It just felt so real. I, I was probably the book from the nineteen eighties I remember most, actually. Really, really, yeah, yes. But I just I, brilliant I book, can,
1: terribly moving, isn't it? And and mm. as you say, quite quite raw. And I don't know. He seems to somehow go through it's not just a sort of exploration of grief it's i don't know it seems to be more than that it goes through every stage of dealing with this dreadful thing and they were both in their thirties, I think yeah when she died um so there's quite a number of there's there's a number of sonnets um but but some of them are longer poems and they're almost like short stories i mean I don't mean they're written in prose but uh, uh you know just the whole the whole process of him having to register the death that's turned into this extraordinary poem which leaves you just thinking you know how yes how do you cope with with it all it's tricky choosing something because um you know some of my favorites i'm not sure if i could really read them without feeling myself welling up but there are quite a few poems that draw this picture of of her not being able to leave her bed and and in this one a friend has made a a mobile, you know, to dangle from the ceiling and yeah. much as you might think of dangling over a baby's cot, you know, it's, uh, all of those things went through my mind. It's called Sandra's Mobile. A constant artist dedicated to curves, shapes, the pleasant shades, the feel of color. She did not care what shapes, what red, what blue, scorning the dull to ridicule the duller with a disinterested, loyal eye. So Sandra brought her this and taped it up. Three seagulls from a white and indoor sky, a gift of old artistic comradeship. Blow on them, love. Those silent birds winged round on thermals of my breath. On her last night, trying to stay awake, I saw love crowned in tears and wooden birds and candlelight she did not wake again to prove our love each gull each gull each gull turned into dove
0: God that's so lovely isn't it? (laughs) That makes me want to just charge back and pick up (laughs) energy again gosh
1: It's just it's oh it's absolutely heartbreaking I don't mean that in a sentimental way but there are so many good poems in here so I'm so pleased to have discovered that somewhat belatedly. Happy birthday, happy belated birthday, Mr Professor Douglas Dunn. How about you? What's your reading material at the moment?
0: Well, yesterday they announced the winners of the T.S. Eliot Prize for this year.
1: Indeed, yes.
0: This year's winner was Sonnets for Albert by Anthony Joseph. And I must confess I haven't read the book until yesterday and I don't really know much about Anthony Joseph but I've rapidly learned about him and uh, he's a British Trinidadian poet uh, born in 1966 in Trinidad and uh, he's a poet, novelist, musician and academic lecturer in creative writing at King's College London. So he's one of these people that's just super talented in lots of different ways. Hmm. In fact, I was listening this morning on Spotify to his album The Rich Are Only Defeated When Running For Their Lives. <laughs> Great which was, title. <laughs> which is a, an album of spoken word poetry, but the, the the music is this really cool kind of jazzy vibe.
1: And now he's he's reached the top of the pillar of poetic I can't think of the else beginning with P. <laughs>
0: poetic has. prizes, <laughs> the pillar of po-
1: the pillar of poetic prizes. Uh,
0: he's done that, yeah. So I've only read it within the last twenty-four hours. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The Albert in the title is his dad, and he was a father that kind of melted away pretty much as uh, Anthony Joseph was born. Although he, he he did keep in touch with him um, from time to time, but there's that kind of. A sense of an absence it resonates because my own father melted away when i was four and i've never seen him again so mm. i'm quite quite kind of tuned into poems about difficult or absent fathers or whatever mm. but the the book is actually full of photographs uh, of albert and, oh is it huh. which is really cool the uh, photos that um you know anthony took when he was uh, visiting or over there uh-huh it's really just a portrait in poem after poem of the of this father, and I think the sort of absence. There's that sense of you know filling in spaces, romanticising things, and you know just reading lots of content from you know brief meetings or just hanging out or you know just small things that the father said, and it sort of builds quite a, an interesting portrait of this you know snappily dressed freewheeling kind of charming to the women guy who was also um, a preacher i think sort of a complicated personality and um, you know the book sort of gets to grips with him um it's peppered with trinidadian vocabulary so um for example on the opening poem there's this line outside the sun continued lancing the galvanize in the Caribbean people to talk about galvanise for galvanised metal for roofs and so on. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah. you get this, the sun continued lancing the galvanized. a really interesting kind of formulation that would,
1: <clears throat> yes, you
0: know, yes. unless you'd had that sort of background, just wouldn't have been, you know, available to you in your mind yeah. probably. I think because I was really kind of looking forward to an exploration of the subject matter and it all being difficult and thorny, Even though the cover talks about, you know, these difficult emotions and things, I didn't think it really got to grips with things for me. But then I think the second time I read it, I began to feel very differently about it.
1: It's tricky, isn't it? Because. You know when a book wins a prize like that it, it, suddenly there's a huge amount of expectation If you'd have read it beforehand alongs- or alongside the other candidates you might have had a different uh, I- impression of it but yeah. one it's it's quite a hefty weight now for it to uh, for it to carry isn't it uh, to any reader.
0: Yeah, um, and and the sort of idea of talking on a podcast about something you only read yesterday is not something well, at least I well, you're do. honest about it. Yeah, you're honest yeah. about
1: it. No, that's fine. You know, we, we we all read things at short notice, and but but at least you're not sort of making out that you're a lifelong <laughs> student of of Anthony Joseph's work.
0: But I, th- I I'm going to read one of the poems, or one of the sonnets.
1: Good, lovely.
0: It's called Light. Light fill the air around these houses. May my grandmother continue to water her roses and touch the aloe fronds in her forever time. Light as you lit the morning, my father arrived unexpectedly in his new Hillman Hunter, and Mammy ran into the yard to embrace him, and until my grandfather put wire around the veranda, I could sit and swing my legs off the banister, or from the garden spy up the thighs of my father's new girlfriend as she laughed with ankles crossed as Albert moulded his mother's anthuriums my grandmother fried fish, we ate she was happy even as she knew that later that afternoon my father would be gone again into that gone momentum so I, I like this idea of a gone momentum you know that sense of his father always had this kind of trajectory of uh, awareness about him you know he was always moving away and being not there and things even Mm. though he was on an island so it's a kind of complicated relationship even though he was absent he's still present you know there's still photos of the of the father and son he wasn't he wasn't a complete absence into which Mm. you can just imagine anything so yeah interesting book and uh, a relationship uh described really well, I think. It's not escaped my notice that it's January, Robin.
1: Again!
0: <laughs> Any plans for world domination?
1: I don't know. It's it's funny, isn't it? I, I do feel very optimistic at the start of the year, but I also sort of, each year I do feel I'm uh, getting a little cynical about things and I have to try to fight that tendency. Do you find that, you know, I think as one gets older, it's very easy to become a bit of a curmudgeon and the curmudgeonly aspect of one's personality. You can't deny it entirely, but I just don't want it to overtake everything. You know, I don't want it to overtake my positivity. Um, But sometimes I just say, but um, yeah, I thought what I should do to refresh my, Writing and you know to to make me fall back in love with writing poetry because I'm a little bit sort of off off it at the moment. Mm. Um, might be just to try writing something completely different. So as you know, you know you and I have both made a living writing commercially, and I've also done quite a bit of academic writing and and I've done I've written how to books, manuals, that sort of thing, and obviously mm. in, in, in those of blogs and things, online things. But I thought, okay. How about the one thing I've always said I would never do and try and write a novel? Um, You heard it first here. (laughs) I haven't dared say it. I don't know. It it may not not happen, but I've just got this thing floating in my head. Maybe I should just make an attempt to write fiction and see where that goes. And it may not go anywhere. But I've always said, oh, no, I can't do that. And that's silly. I, I think it might refresh the parts that other bits of writing haven't reached. So... Uh so that's my sort of that's what I'm thinking of at the moment, literary wise. How about you? Any any new ambitions or
0: No, no no ambitions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested by you plunging into prose because I, I've hmm. over the years you know, I've had, you know, quite a bit of prose published, you know, I dabble in all kinds of things.
1: You have? I, well, no, you, but you not just dabble, you I think you're, people don't know this, but you have written some very successful short stories and plays as well, haven't you? But both genres I've never had the sort of guts to, to touch.
0: Different parts of my personality come out in the the forms I'm using. So when I write plays, I only ever write comedies. And oh. the last sort of Half dozen or so short stories have had published have all been horror stories, you know, and kind of full of anxious
1: sort of psychological horror. Psychological
0: sort of horror, yeah.
1: Is there a lot of gore and death? No
0: gore, no. I hate gore, gore, but just people teetering on the brink of madness. You know, writing in completely different media, I think sometimes give you the opportunity to be a different person in a way. Ah. Um, that's interesting so it'd be interesting to see if you find uh, exploring prose a way of you know exploring a different part of you Ah,
1: oh, good yeah. i feel positive about it then what about you any big plans
0: i've always got my secret ambition which is to get my wretched collection accepted somewhere um, oh. uh, and i've got sort <laughs> of one collection that's kind of pretty much there um, excellent and i'd like to complete the other one and just sort of pump them out you know see what happens
1: oh well best of luck with that because i yeah. think my long awaited what do they call it a long awaited collection i think i think uh, <laughs> i think we'll all be waiting for that till the end of kingdom come <laughs> i'm a bit off a bit off with collections at the moment why do we have to put poems into a collection that's my
0: question all i ask in life is a book of poetry with my name on the spine <gasps> Oh, yeah. Uh, and yes. don't, uh, I just don't, you know, if somebody offers me a book of poetry with no spine... <laughs> I, 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 that would be the that?
1: end. A spineless collection.
0: <laughs> you can see the reviews. <laughs> spineless.